0: some common sense. Yes,
1: sir. Any other cars stopped in town and the by Michael Byther. We
0: still
2: don't know who pulled the trigger.
0: Everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27 year veteran of the NYPD. We have a really exciting show tonight. And who else but to join me and help me navigate this show but is the great professor, retired NYPD Sergeant, law degree, Mike Geary. And I'm going to bring Mike in uh, right n- next. Mike, hey, welcome to the show.
2: Good evening, Billy. Good to see you.
0: Always good to see you, because I always refer to you as the man of reason, where I'm the more excitable man of not reason, you know. But with, we also have an unbelievable guest tonight, Bobby Chacona, retired FBI agent, 27 years on the FBI, a Long Island boy, too. West Bablin grew up 10 minutes from Gilgo Beach. How coincidental is that? Hofstra University Law School graduated. go flying Dutchman, although they don't call him that anymore, the, the, the Hofstra Pride. I used to love it when they were uh, a Hofstra flying Dutchman. I lived in Levittown, 15 minutes away. The Jets used to practice at Hofstra University, and I used to love it. But Bobby Chacon, besides being the real-life career, is actually way more exciting than his career now. But you guys will probably find his career now more exciting. He's a writer for um, Criminal Minds, and he's in the Writers Guild of America. And, I mean, I, I, I know that people love you know, the fake as opposed to the real, but Bobby Chacon is the real deal. Bobby, welcome to the show.
3: Hey, thanks, sir. Thanks. Nice to meet you. I mean, nice seeing you again. We've met before. Um, yeah, this is kind of like old home. I, I was telling you earlier, my dad and brother were both retired NYPD sergeants, and your opening montage there uh, certainly takes me back to my, my days of, uh, you know, going to precinct picnics and up to police camp in upstate New York and, uh, and uh, going in, in with my dad when he had to pick up his paper check. At, that, at the station, I remember, I remember that
0: too. Oh my god, I used to remember even cops, you know, with my time on the job, they would cash their check at the bodega or at the bar and get this big horse thing full of cash. And I was like, What are you doing? You know? Uniform,
3: uniform check never quite made it home
0: either. that's why. And Bobby, I think that's why the expression handbag came around, you heard them, right. Because they yeah. used to say, old-time cops would never buy uniform, new uniforms, <laughs> so it looked like hair was growing out of their uniforms, thus the term hairbag. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, all cops know that expression. I'm sure a lot of the folks in the chat are like, hairbag, what are these guys talking about? <laughs> anyway, let's get to the topic at hand today. Bobby, I know you watched this Gilgo Beach case uh, it's, it's since 2010. This has been uh, on the mind of all people from Long Island a serial killer out of uh, Gilgo Beach. And when I first heard that they made an arrest, I was like, no way, this is just some TV station making something up so they can get some ratings. And then when I heard it was the real deal, I was like, this is unbelievable. And one of the things that we found out, and we're going to dig into this case a little bit, finishing the warrant on his house and the search of his house, what do you expect that they may have found inside that house?
3: Well, I mean, the first thing you hope, well, besides, unfortunately, human reigns that you hope for, right? You hope for more victims. You know, we had heard that there was possibly, you know, victims in the backyard. Now I understand that might not have happened. Um, but the second thing you look for in a case like this is stuff that ties him to the victims. Some people call them trophies. Some call them souvenirs. You know, there's different words, different people use. And quite frankly, different items represent different things to a killer like this. So that's what you're hoping for. You're hoping for a bracelet or, you know, an ID, a, a, a driver's license. You know, that's the home run. You know, that's, that's kind of what you're looking for, something to tie him directly to the victims, in addition to the stuff that kind of we've heard, you know, leaked out a little bit by, you know, different sources about, like, you know, they saw his car or they saw a description of him or whatever. And so what you're really hoping for is something to tie him to. Remember, you we, we have to focus. He's right now charged with three homicides. That's what you have to focus on. I know people want to know the bigger picture of, but he's charged and the clock is ticking. So there are motions on the schedule. You know, th- there's things that have to be done with respect to these charges because you have a, you know, have a, tr- a speedy trial rule. You have things that have to be. So you have to like focus on these three homicides that he's charged with and get all the evidence you can. Fo- you know, and kind of have another team investigating the other possible homicides but he's charged with crimes right now there's a clock ticking there's a there's a motion schedule and and so they have to move forward so you're hoping that that there are definite physical things like a driver's license or a piece of jewelry or something that ties him to one of those three victims that that he's charged with
0: absolutely professor mike what is the chances that any actual forensic evidence i.e hairs fibers blood Anything like that could be found after twelve
2: years, Billy. Given the uh, you know his his uh, home and the fact that he seemed to have the place was like a hoard, described as a hoarder's home, and he may be a, a souvenir kind of collector. Uh, and the fact that it's indoors and away from the elements, and that there may be places where he put things where no one else would be able to trample on them or find them. Uh, Their odds are it may be good that he could, that they could find something because remember he's smart and stupid at the same time. He's smart because he, he, he put the, he put the bodies in a place that's really far out of the way in a dune. Um, They're exposed to the elements. Uh, He had the burner phones. He was paying cash for extra minutes. Um, But on the other hand, he was stupid in the fact that he didn't realize how the cell phone technology works when the signal is bouncing off towers and they can, triangulate where calls are coming from at different times. I'm hopeful because I just think he is a uh, token collector. And uh, the fact that there may be uh, places in house where no one would come and say clean, you know, or the wife would clean or, you know, you're just hoping that there's that old carpeting with maybe some sort of, I'd say it would be graphic, but bodily fluids and things like that. I, I think the odds are good.
0: You know, Bobby and uh, and Mike, when, when cops say the house was rather cluttered, you know, you know, it was an absolute shithole because cops don't use word like cluttered. That house was probably, like you say, a hoarder's paradise. And, you know, you could tell from the outside, this guy had some mental issues. He's an architect, yet he had two by fours holding his damn house up. Bobby, what do you think?
3: Yeah. I mean, he's all over the place. I think that he, you know, he lived a very chaotic life. Uh, these were chaotic crimes. Uh, you know, the um, I think the that house in, inside, I get like, you know, normal houses for us. I mean, you know, when I did gang search warrants in, in Brooklyn and Queens, I mean, normal houses for us are a mess. So that's a normal house. Like we walk in a house, that's a mess. We just call it a normal house. When you start describing something as cluttered, I think you're right. I think that means it was even more of a mess because everything's like in, a, in our perspective, you know, you'd have to be way over the top for it to be considered cluttered. And if he's doing that, there's all the more chance that he's kept stuff that he shouldn't have, that he never thought he'd be caught. And so, hopefully, um, you know, we'll we'll find that they've they've come up with something to tie him directly to some of these victims. Because once that, once you have that, I mean, how do you explain that away? There's a lot to be explained away with cell phone records. The defense can muddy the waters with technical jargon and things like that. But if you've got a driver's license or a piece of jewelry that you can put in, you know, onto one of those victims, I mean, that's really hard stuff, how it made its way from wherever the victim was last seen into his house in Massapequa Park. That's a, that's a tough uh, explanation.
0: Absolutely. You know, I don't think many people understand, though, when, they, when you saw the amount of evidence they took out of that house, it seemed like never-ending. So the job of now collecting it, vouchering it correctly, and cataloging it, photographing it, because guess what? They're going to want to show this to missing persons out there, the families of missing persons. I can't show it to the missing persons. To the families of missing persons, and maybe put it out there in the media. Does anyone recognize this, this piece of jewelry or that? And that, believe it, it's painstaking, but that's how they're going to come across potentially new victims. of. Because uh, I believe... And I think many people believe, and you said it's, it's important, of course, to concentrate on the three that they have him for right now. But I believe he did not start killing when he was 46 years old. So I think this could go back decades. Professor Mike, what do you think?
2: Billy, probably it would go back, I would think, to the, to the 80s. Um, you got to remember, he's uh, 59 right now. So in the 80s, he was mid-80s, say, 1983. He was, uh, you know, 20 years old. Um, in in the prime of his life, yeah, I would think that uh, he didn't get, he's very orderly in the way he disposed of, unfortunately, these three girls. And um, I would imagine that as a younger man with rage against girls uh, and prostitutes um, that he killed more. I watched a video on an interview with um, Joel Rifkin, uh, and uh, just in preparation for tonight's show, and he said, there's always that urge. And he, he assumed is very recent and he assumed that, uh, there would be more bodies. So I think if it's, if Joel Rifkin believes that there's more bodies and this has gone on a lot longer than we think, I I take Joel Rifkin at his word. I think he pretty much knows what he's talking about.
0: And Bobby, uh, don't be slanted by, you know, or, or, (laughs) or or swayed by the, the, The cynical views of guys in the NYPD. What are you? What are your feelings as an FBI agent? I think. Well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Do you? Do you feel the same thing that we feel in regards to Rex Ewerman?
3: Oh yeah, sure. I mean, look, the, I, the last serial killer case I worked was 2011. I, I recovered a dismembered 19 year old victim. She was dismembered and put under a frozen lake in Alaska. And he and and the killer there had started at at 17 or 18, and he was 34 when we caught him. Um, and these are crimes of compulsion. Most of them. most of them are psychosexual, and most of its crimes of compulsion. So these are not emotions that they can harness for any significant length of time. Sure, sometimes months, maybe a year, maybe a little longer. But ultimately, these compulsions overtake them again, and they have to kill again. That's the and and the only the only thing I will say is that in the in the cases where we have seen a significant time off if you will or a stoppage of there's a significant life event there's a death of a wife or something there's a significant life event that takes place so i'm sure they've investigated his life and background if he has no significant life and it doesn't seem like he has he's been married he's been living in this house he's raised his kids in this house it it seems like he's had a pretty stable lifestyle if there's been no major life event that caused him to kind of veer off this course there's no reason for me to believe that this hasn't been happening both quite frankly, before 2011, 2010 and after and up until now. So so th- these these compulsive crimes um, and look, I've, we've seen guys tell us about them, the guys themselves when they're interviewed, they say they couldn't control it. Um, they could control it for a while. They get some satisfaction over kill, and then that wanes and then they get, you know, it starts to grow again until they have to go out on the hunt again. And and so I think he was, he's this is stuff of compulsion for him. And, uh, you know, I fully expect the Atlantic City, the other parts of the country, them to be investigating where he spent any kind of time, um, either on, on work trips or any kind of things like that um, to be looking. And I think you're right. I think they, they'll set up a website. Um, they'll put the jewelry out there. They'll put anything else they have out there that's unidentified and they'll, they'll try to drive people to look at the website and see if they can identify some of this stuff.
0: Absolutely. You know, Bobby, we had talked a little bit about, and Mike, I'll get to you in a second. I don't want to just favor Bobby because he's, he's the FBI. And no, in my be <laughs>
2: it's okay. We have to have PT. some
0: humor yeah. in the show that too, Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> um, we talked a little bit about modus operandi and, of course, Signature. And he has a very specific modus operandi. Uh, he targets sex workers and his signature and to oversimplify it are these green um bags these green sacks that he used to tie them up with uh burlap bags if you will uh so that's definitely a signature thing would a a serial killer and again he's accused serial killer he's arrested people uh find fault that i already convicted him that's what they say but i'm just will the police and that's the way we think. All right. So his modus operandi and the signature being the green camouflage burlap bags, would he deviate from that? Or is that what he's going to stay with every time?
3: From doing that, fr- um, Can you hear me?
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah. You froze up for a I second. Go ahead.
3: Yeah. I think he would, he would try to stay to it as much as possible. Um, you know, there are, there are two categories of these things, right? One is him not wanting to be caught. So using a burner phones, right? He does, that doesn't give him any joy, the, the burner phone thing, right? That's just a way of not getting caught. And, and so he, you know, but at the same time, l- sex workers have traditionally been a big target of serial killers, but he did it in a specific way. He did what we call alcohols, right? He, so he, he called the girls on the phone. He didn't cruise up and down, a red light district and pick them up on the street, which some serial killers have done. So even, you know, it's even more specific than that, the use of the burner phones, the drawing them to a certain area and you know, his killing zone where he's comfortable. And so, so there is more to it than that. And each one of those things, he would try to stay as close as possible each time. The other part of the other category of stuff is the stuff that gives him the the joy, the the, the strangulation, because you're seeing them, the fear in their eyes and things like that. So that stuff they try to, they almost always stick to. The stuff that's, they try to, the, the category of stuff that they, what we call forensic countermeasures um, is, is stuff that they sometimes deviate from if they can't stick to it. Um, so those two things, those two categories, they try to stick to as much as possible. They're going to deviate, they're going to deviate from the first category. Um, and usually that's kind of where they get caught, where they deviate from that first category, which is the of countermeasures, you know, and he w- he started making mistakes on on the cell phones, on, you know, he was using them to uh, access Uh, websites that were then connected to other parts of his life and stuff. So, um, yeah, I I don't think he. they only deviate when it's absolutely necessary or something intercedes and forces them to deviate from it.
0: So then he could he still be a suspect in the other Gilgo Beach uh, murders or does the fact that his MO well, the MO is they were all uh, sex workers except I think believe there was a man dressed as a woman uh, uh tr- possible tr- uh tra- transgender um but then in a, a a small um a, ch- a toddler they said that could have been with well probably was with the mother but because his MO and the, the signature may not be exactly the same does, does would that exclude him for that or would that still include him
3: I wouldn't exclude it from me because these guys, they, they evolve over time. So if you look at the first killings, if you had a chance to look at all of their killings, the first killings and, and the last killings would be different. They, they learn and they evolve. And, and, and so, um, you know, they do things differently as they get better at doing this um, and they, they learn. So, so the criminal element, obviously, we all know criminals are the most um, evolutionary adaptable elements in our society and so they learn how the system works so they evolve so you might see an evolution of some of those killings so it wouldn't surprise me it would actually be the opposite it would surprise me if it wasn't tied to some of those other victims because what are the chances of in this one stretch of beach multiple homicide victims from different murders that are unconnected to each other all happen to be buried within you know a couple of hundred yards of each other i would find that you know very very unlikely
0: absolutely uh, professor mike Throughout history, serial killers have targeted sex workers. Going back to Jack the Ripper in England, he targeted sex workers. Thoughts about that?
2: Billy, they're the most vulnerable. You've seen them out in the street in, in Manhattan and in other places where you've worked, I, in the Bronx and in Manhattan where I worked. Um, they're the girls that uh, have, have run away. They don't have anybody looking for them. They may, uh, they may not be connected to, to to their family. They might not hear or see their family for months on end. So they may go missing um, and the family might not report them because they don't even know that they're missing. They work at night, you know, in the evening, early morning hours where there's a lot less people around to see an attack on one of them or to see a license plate of uh, the person that whose car they get into. Um, so therefore, and if it's somebody like a... Uh, like a Joel Rifkin, you know, with, um, they could get, it's easier to get away with, with it that way. They're the most, they're probably, and they're, and they're tend to be, they're women. They tend to be skinnier, smaller. Many of them are drug addicted and have, uh, perhaps narcotic issues. So they can get, you can get them high. You might get them drunk. Um, you take them to a secluded place like a motel or a lover's lane, um, where there's very few prying eyes. Nobody's driving around they are really, really vulnerable. Like the elderly in our society, the, You know, they are, they're shut-ins, you don't see them too much. Uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, that's why you do it. It's uh, who's the most vulnerable person? I don't want to try to, if I'm going to rob somebody, I don't want to rob somebody that looks like they're physically capable of taking me on. I want to rob somebody who's very skinny, smaller than me, that I could overpower. I want to do it at a time and a place where there's not a lot of, cameras or witnesses around that sort of thing. Um, and, and so I think, yeah, that's, unfortunately, it's probably the riskiest profession there is to engage in because you do have these, uh, guys occasionally going around and, um, taking advantage of them and, and raping them and killing them.
0: Absolutely. I want to play a little bit of this, um, this video and then we'll uh, comment on it
4: from David Schaller. He says he met with homicide detectives on multiple occasions during the initial years of the investigation. He told detectives then what he repeated again last year, and that led to the arrest of the suspect. It was a tip about this Chevy avalanche that led to to the arrest of Gilgo Beach serial killer suspect Rex Ewerman. The clue coming from the victim, Amber Costello's Long Island roommate at the time. David Schaller telling the Associated Press he spoke with homicide detectives multiple times more than a decade ago when Costello vanished. He was re-interviewed in 2022 and brought it up again. Shaler telling the AP, quote, I gave them the exact description of the truck and the dude. I mean, come on. Why didn't they use that? We went to the Brooklyn address listed for Shaler now, but he wasn't available to speak with us Saturday night. Shaler had also told investigators a decade ago that he came face to face with the suspect in the driveway of their West Babylon home, telling the AP, quote, when they told me she was dead, he was the first person who jumped in my head. I've been picturing his face for 13 years. Suffolk District Attorney Ray Tyranny on what Schaller said
1: specifically, um, you know, individuals between 6'4 and 6'6, you know, well over 200 pounds.
4: Tyranny says
1: detectives
4: connected the victim to burner phones back in 2012. But it wasn't until years later that detectives narrowed that to a region of Massapequa Park and cross-referenced it with DMV records. According to vehicle history reports, Ewerman bought the pickup at a Chevy dealer on Long Island in 2002, and transferred ownership to his brother in South Carolina in 2012. Tyranny, who became DA in 2022, explains why the tip got buried.
1: When they're getting that, that's that's lost within a sea of of other tips and information they're getting. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, there wasn't really any uh, you know coherent leadership uh, at the top. Uh, so uh, the, you know, the, there's no, there is no interaction between the FBI and the other agencies.
4: And retired Suffolk police detective Rob Trotta, who worked with the FBI, tells me it really was a Suffolk Police Department and District Attorney's Office in crisis more than a decade ago.
1: I really think this should have been solved You know, three weeks after that body was
0: found. The, the head of the District Attorney's Office was a guy named Jimmy Burke, who later became the Chief of Police. Um, We know now that he was a criminal. He went to federal prison. The district attorney at the time is still in federal prison. And I think what happened was, and I know this firsthand, because I've talked to retired inspectors and chiefs uh, in the police department. They were unaware that the car was there. They were unaware that there was a six-foot-four male as a suspect. They were not being told this.
4: And tonight, the suspect, Rex Ureman, remains behind bars in the Suffolk County Jail.
0: You know, I have so many comments about that. First of all, uh, there was problems with the Suffolk County Police, absolutely with the guy Burke and with the District Attorney's office. But this guy Schaller, they did a rip. They did a—he's—he's he's either he's involved in the sex trade himself. They ripped Rex Ewer, Ewerman the night before—a fa- you know a typical uh, let's rip the John, don't do the job, take his money and rip him, and we'll get him out of here. And what the rip was that he came into the house. And he posed as the boyfriend and said and acted really, uh, you know, mad that he was going to fight a Uyman. Human took off. Look, I'm not sticking up for the serial killer, but I'm just saying, I, how good is this information? All of a sudden, he has complete recall 13 years later. I'm, I'm, I'm having some doubts. I would love to see his rap sheet, first of all. And, that you, you know, we always vet all of our witnesses that way to see what is his criminal history. I would just love to see that for my own edification. Part two of this, a lot of this stuff is, you know, how accurate were in 2012, 2011, was the cell site hits and the technology to do, uh, the, the, you know, to do the cell site hits in Massapequa Park and the one in Manhattan, and then put it together with the suspect. Look, when the task force was put together, six weeks after they read this case, someone from the state police saw the Chevrolet avalanche and I, I think ran a lawman check on it and put it together. And somehow with all, you know, connecting the dots of the the cell phone, the burner phone information with the car, with the information they, they had. And don't forget, they also had DNA information. Now they put it, they put it all together. And that's how I, I think over a year ago, Rex Shurman became a suspect, but certainly not as simple as will led to believe that it was. And one of the things I really admire about Rodney Harrison is that he's not looking to put blame on people in the past. He's looking to move forward because they have their work cut out for them. Bobby, your thoughts?
3: Well, I mean, look, I, I agree with you. I think that they should be looking, you know, they've got work to do here. But, I, you know, I, I, think the, I think there's always an opportunity to look back and learn and see if there were mistakes made, what those mistakes were, and how to avoid those mistakes in the future. Now, some of them might not be made again because of, like you said, there was simply technology not available back then that's available now, right? We're hearing, you know, investigative genealogy might have been put to, to put to use here as well. Um, so I think that I think there needs to be a focus on, like I said, he's been charged with three murders. Let's make sure we get a conviction. Let's handle that case solid, and and then all of the other cases we can investigate while he's serving a convicted life sentence, and let's get him locked in. And then let's go back and look at the investigation and, and, and see if we can do a hot wash, see if there's any, you know, the, what, what mistakes were made, how they were made. And so we, we can maybe learn from it and not make those mistakes in the future. That's all you can do. But we shouldn't cloud uh, the current investigation with those thoughts. Like I said, like, I, I'm sure there are separate investigations now going on in Atlantic City and elsewhere in the country that he might be convicted connected to homicides, but they can't cloud the focus of the investigative team that's taken those three homicides to trial. Because that's that clock is running, that train has left the station, the court's filings have been been filed and, and stuff. And so you have to start, you know, have to start hearings and you have to start testimony and putting evidence into a record, you know, you know, at these hearings. And so, so I think that I think that I get the public wants to know if mistakes were made, but there's a time and a place for that. I think that's later. Let's look at it. Let's make sure that if mistakes were made, we know what they, how, how they were made, and we, we put safeguards in place. But I think, that, I think that's a different focus, and it shouldn't cloud what, what the work of this task force has done. I think the chief, former chief of department of the NYPD went out there, constituted that task force as the new police commissioner in Suffolk County, did a great job at putting the right people in the same room together, and they solved this case. Now, why wasn't it solved back then? Well, let's, let's later on, let's go and take a look at that. But I think right now we have to focus on what's right in front of us. And right in front of us is a guy that's been charged with three homicides. You know, there's, there's, you know, he's going to have court appearances. He's entitled to a speedy trial and we need to kind of focus on that.
0: 100%. Yeah. You know, Mike, uh, I I look at the fact that, you know, according to this guy Schaller, he was interviewed numerous times. If that's true, those interviews should have been on what we would call in the NYPD DP fives or complaint follow-ups and it should be in the case folder. So to me, it says that there was no oversight. Either those interviews never made it into the case folder, or there was no boss reading the case folder and saying, What's going on with this? What are we, have we found this car? What are we doing with this? Your thoughts, Mike.
2: Yeah, Billy, I think uh, Tierney, uh, District Attorney Tierney's right on that interview. He's like, You know, it's a failure of, of some supervision at the top. And uh, even within the uh, first. Uh, time when they were investigating these cases in two thousand and ten, well before there's any sort of task force you know what kind of supervision was provided but uh we we talked about this a little bit the other day, and I brought up the fact that you know um it's a missing person's case at the very beginning because it wasn't a homicide investigation they had not found her body for six months, so the first interview he may have had with the with the detective from Suffolk County was about a missing person, okay, and he describes maybe he describes at that time a tall guy, a big guy, and maybe he says there's an avalanche. Okay, Um, her body is found a couple of months later. Now it turns once you make the ID who it is. Now it turns into a homicide investigation. All right. Now you're going to reinterview him. Now, remember, uh, he may as as a very cynical New York City, like I would be a very cynical New York City homicide detective. I'd be sitting there going, okay, you're going to I'm going to reinterview the guy. And if he starts claiming the same thing about a guy who's six foot six, you know, I'm going to think to myself, wait a minute, is it possible that he is actually the killer? Maybe he killed his girlfriend and he had to report, he, he made a report to cover his ass back six months ago, not thinking her body would ever be found. Remember, the last person to see someone alive is quite often one of the, more, the strongest suspects you have. Um, and we do know that sometimes people, Uh, you know do these sorts of things in like a domestic situation so I'm not so sure that at the time that it occurred not now looking back you know in hindsight because that's always 2020 but at the time that the detectives were talking to him that they weren't so sure that his story was actually holding up and might have been some of it might have been made up and so therefore yeah was there uh, not not proper follow-up I'm sure but, um, and is that a failure of leadership on the squad level, and not even the task force level, on the squad level, detective squad level? Yeah, I'm sure. But, um, you know, it, uh, it probably is not due to absolute uh, gross incompetence by every member of the, you know, the, the, this, the county police, like some critics wanna say or something like that. Now, you, like, like Bobby said, you know, you, you work on this case now, you learn from your mistakes, and then you move on.
0: You know Bobby, uh it's funny like you said that because I worked in the detective squad in the NYPD for 16 years and I was a sergeant for um 16 of my 22 years as a sergeant I was in the detective bureau and the oversight was unbelievable. I mean not only did your lieutenant read the case, the captain read the case, the deputy inspector read the case, then it went to the chief of the town. I'm talking if it it was a big case, they're not going to read every, you know, missing person, every domestic violence case. But it was, so it had so much oversight. And then when the DD5 system, because in the NYPD, we were still hitting two rocks together to make a spark (laughs) for the longest time. When the DD5 system went onto the computers, we are like, oh my God. The whole department's going to be able to read it. It's searchable. Oh, my God. We couldn't believe it. What do you mean every detective's getting a computer? We were, like, shocked because we were using typewriters with carbons. You see, I, I sound like Crazy Eddie. I'm getting <laughs> all excited over this, you know. But so the technology now with the DD5 system, everyone was reading the damn case, you know, which was another problem, I think. But... You know so we were used to so much oversight and probably that's what rodney harrison brought out to suffolk too was the amount of supervision and the amount of oversight that look it resulted in uh
3: an arrest your thoughts bobby yeah look i grew up in suffolk county and you know i grew up in the in the 60s and 70s in suffolk county and it was you know quite rural i mean quite frankly you know, you go out, not now, of course, but, if, you know, in my day when I was growing up, uh, you know, if you go out to the, the east end of Long Island, it was quite rural. There were farms and there were now there's old wineries and it's trendy. But back then, th- this was a lot of farmland out there. And so the entire county had, you know, Nassau was a little bit more cosmopolitan, right? It was like the, the higher upper crust of Long Island because it was right next to Queens, you know, and so and so like. It was still, you know, it's still, it was, it was still like kind of the stepchild of Nassau County and, and stuff. And Suffolk County, we, you know, so we always had that kind of reputation. And so I think it was, I think, you know, you might have had a, um, an institutional kind of identity of, you know, this is, we're a sleepy little department where, you know, this is mostly rural stuff out here. There was no real large cities, you know, in Suffolk County and stuff. And so, like, I, you know, there was some guys I knew that had transferred from NYPD out to Suffolk and, you know, then you know, wanted to go back because it was so too slow for them. You know, so I think that you did have some, some of that was, was, was a result of, of that, that, that you had this institutional largesse, this kind of like, you know, we're just a sleepy kind of thing. And, you know, the homicides don't happen here and stuff. And I think when this landed in their lap, I think that, you know, I have to think that, the fact that you had a chief of department, NYPD, go out there and 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 take this thing by by the by the neck and, and shake it loose and put the right people in the room together, that's I don't think that's coincidence. I think that that's that's a big city police department, the best police department in the world, coming in and going. This is how we approach it. And I think had you had some of those people in this case back then, things might have might have worked differently. Absolutely. You
0: know, Bobby, I'd like to point out to the people listening that. Yes, Suffolk County was a sleepy little police department that happened to be the second highest paid in New York State. <laughs> so it was sleepy; they got paid for sleeping. Well, and, I, <laughs> and look,
3: I grew up there. So, and when I was a young adult there, if I if I locked my keys in my FBI car, you know, and I called the, the local police, I had three radio cars there in ten minutes. So, you know, I don't complain about that.
0: They were, <laughs> they
3: were, they, were, you know, they they were, they didn't have much to do, but they, they did show up, you know, when you needed your, them.
0: But. Your, your taxes at work, right? <laughs> I'm going to go to go to a quick commercial, guys. Uh, Folks, this is Police Off The Cuff, real crime stories. If you like real crime, true crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to the Police Off The Cuff in a financial way, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with count counting five different levels. And our fans, our subscribers, our friends are on our YouTube channel, and we really Appreciate everything they do for us. Jane C., thank you so much for the 1999 super sticker. Very much appreciated, folks. Uh, Jane, thank you so much. Uh, so getting getting back to this case, um, it seems like a lot of people want to dwell on the negative. Uh, you know, you get a lot of uh, police people that don't like the police and they want to dwell on the fact, oh, they should have arrested him two weeks after this happened. Okay, let's, like you said, Bobby, Let's solve the rest of this case. Let's uh, complete this investigation. Let's see if he's comp- done any more murders anywhere else in this country. And we, could, we can assign a team to work on what happened uh, 12 years ago. Why was there no arrest? You know, and lo- look into it. And that, what is their report going to turn up? We'll, we'll find out. But this, in the meantime, we have a serial killer. Alleged serial killer under arrest. Let me play a little bit of D. A. Tierney here.
1: New York State Police, Suffolk County Sheriff, the Suffolk County Police Department, New York State Police, Suffolk County Sheriff's Office, and and FBI, um, who all of whom uh, participated in one one way or the other uh, with regard to the to the search. Um, You know, I really other than that, I don't have any. uh, I don't have anything else to say. But I'm I'm more than willing to take questions. Anybody have questions? so there's no, uh, I don't, I believe at this time that we can say uh, one way or the other. Either um, evidence, evidence does not point either one way or the other. Uh, I would, I would say that we ha- we have obtained a massive amount of of uh, material, which all of which has to be cataloged and and uh, analyzed, and it's going to take uh, quite some time. So
4: just a quick follow-up: if a victim's DNA turned up on material in the house that indicate perhaps
1: that she was killed here um so i'm not going to talk about what ifs but but with regard to what if anything was recovered it's going to be it's not uh like tv it's going to be a while for the uh the analysts to do their job now it goes from it goes from here to trace section and then to the, the if appropriate the dna section so that's a that's a process yesterday
4: the police commissioner said that the search was Elaborate on any of the
1: potential evidence taken from here? I, think, I think what he's referring to is the amount of evidence uh, which, which is quite a lot uh, and now it's up to the job of the task force uh, to go through that evidence and we, you know we, we, that's a process and we need to do, we need to do that process but uh, we won't know exactly uh, what we have for, for quite some time because just given the sheer volume of, of uh, evidence that was, was, was taken. I one
4: of the other news outlets what you wrote of what looked like bird bones um in the
1: backyard. Did you share anything? I can tell you that uh you know there were there was ground piercing uh um uh you know technology used in the backyard, uh and there uh specifically there was there there was nothing uh, of note um, of taken from the backyard, uh, as far as remains, uh, you know, there are, there is a a whole entire trace analysis that has to has to we have to go through with the house, uh, with regard to hair fibers, DNA, blood, uh, which, you know, we'll, we'll just have to await the results on.
0: The amount of evidence they took out of the house and the voluminous, uh, amount of records that will have to be made from that as well as I, look, I'm not a crime scene guy. I can't even amount imagine the amount of chemicals they sprayed inside that house to of course bring blood. If there were blood on the walls or anywhere else, Uh, there's something called amino black they use. I don't even know half the stuff because you'd have to be really a, a crime scene guy to know that kind of stuff. But Ed Wallace, who is a first grade detective from the NYPD and he teaches crime scene techniques all all over the world, he seemed to think that there still could be forensic evidence in the House 12 or 13 years later. I mean, it's sort of hard to believe, but uh, Bobby, your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, no, it depends on what, first of all, I wish the DA would have used the word material instead of evidence, because when he said all this evidence was taken from the House, material was taken from the House, whether it's evidence or not is what the process is about. So when he says evidence, people hear that and say, oh, they took about a bunch of evidence out of the House. That's not what they took. They took a bunch of material that that they could take because of the warrant, you know, it was specified in the warrant. But that, not, that doesn't mean everything they took is evidence. The, the process he then explained of analysis will determine which of that material is actual evidence. So they took voluminous amounts of material out of the house. Not all of that is going to be evidence. That's just the lawyer and me you know, wanting to make sure. I, that, I was, I was going to say that, but I didn't. But it's also misleading for people because they hear evidence, all of this evidence and people on the internet are going, well, they took all this evidence out. It's Stand back. It's not evidence necessarily. Let's look at what it is. Let them analyze it. Some things have to be sent to a lab to be analyzed. Some things have to, an analyst has to sit down at a desk for hours and analyze it. So I think that, that let's, let's, let's not call everything they took out as evidence. Second thing is yes, I think there are depending on what DNA is. If it's a fingernail, if it's a hair fiber, um, things do depending on on the the climatic uh, environment it's in. If it's fairly stable, if it's not open to the to you know to the elements and stuff, things can last a long time. Um, it can you know like you know if it's in a basement, I mean, you know, we've all been in some of those rooms where you, you move something out of the couch and something looks, the, looks like it's been there for 10 years, you know, some of the, <laughs> in some of these drug houses in Brooklyn that I used to do warrants in and stuff. And so, you know, like, I think that there is, there's, there's a chance that DNA, DNA does last depending on, you know, what, what kind of DNA, is it a bone or is it a finger, is it a fingernail, is it a hair fiber? Um, and then what climate conditions, it's been exposed to the humidity, dryness, water, you know, all of those things uh, impact. I was a forensic guy for 19 years, but all, most of my uh, forensic work was underwater. I ran the FBI's underwater forensic program. And so all of that, you know, that's a whole nother world. Um, and, and how salt water and fresh water affects evidence differently. So warm water, cold water affects it differently. Moving water, still water. So a lot of the things um, about where a piece of evidence is, where a piece of, you know, material that might contain DNA is, um, will determine its value and how long it lasts. But I certainly think there can be stuff of value in that house.
0: You know, Bobby and Mike, you can answer this too. There's been a lot of confusion, and um, even uh, people that are in the know are confused at this. They got Rex Ewerman's DNA surreptitiously. They were able to uh, get an exemplar from a discarded box of pizza crust that was left inside there. They swabbed the cross, they came across the saliva. Now they have the exemplar. They were asked, does that now go into CODIS? And the answer was from the district attorney, tyranny: no. CODIS is only for uh, convicted, convicted persons. So my question is, and again, people think that everyone should be a genius on DNA, but it's very, very complicated. They have this exemplar. Can they now use that exemplar to compare against other cases legally, or they do they now have to get a court order and obtain a new exempt law, say to compare against a new case? Wow, <laughs> you guys aren't jumping at this point.
3: I mean, look, I, I'm I'm as in the dark with DNA as you know, like I'm I'm very old school, but um, with 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 DNA. But I I mean I don't think they have to get an. I mean they could. Uh, You know, they could force him to give, and we certainly have done that before, force him to give a DNA sample and then compare that to other crime scenes out there where they have an unknown subject. Um, But but I don't I don't see them, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't see them being prohibited from using the thing, the the, the DNA um, profile they got off the pizza crust um, to compare to other cases. I understand why it doesn't go into CODIS, but I I don't think that they are prohibited from, uh, you know, using that profile. And, and trying to match it up with unknown samples. In other words, so you have, and this is just a hypothetical, you have homicide X happened somewhere else out in the city, uh, out even in another city, somewhere else, and you have a victim and you have DNA from somebody. They run that through CODIS, no hit in CODIS. So you have no other prior convicted criminals that that belongs to. You know, how they pick and choose what, which of those kinds of cases, by the way, there are probably thousands of those kinds of cases around the country. Now, how they pick and choose how they take that pizza crust profile and match it to these other cases. I don't know. You do that. Has he spent time there? Was he there working? Those kind of things is the MO match. And then you start using that profile against the unknown possible perpetrator profiles in these other cases. I don't think, I don't see why they would be prohibited from doing that.
0: So that exemplar uh, it's home right now is some lab. Some lab has that exemplar. So did they become the custodian of Rex Ewellman's DNA? Mike, do you know the answer to
2: that? Yeah, Billy, right now they are they are the custodian of the DNA. Just think about it. Um, there may be cases, homicide cases that you've worked on where there's maybe several suspects and uh, you, you surreptitiously or voluntarily, they give up their, their DNA. Um, it's not automatically loaded into CO- CODIS. You're looking to see if the DNA that's been surreptitiously Given and I love that word, or taken uh, by consent, uh, matches DNA found at a crime scene. If those, if any of those suspects is is not charged in the crime, uh, they're private citizens. They have their their right to privacy, um, and you don't want their you know their DNA out there in some sort of uh, in in CODIS, um, especially when they've never been convicted of a crime. So it you've got you know that issue too to look at but uh as of right now yeah that lab seems to be the custodian of that um that sample and until he is actually convicted if and when he's ever convicted it could be in the federal system but until then that happens then they are the custodians and it seems to go no farther than that
0: you know guys i'm using a lot of law school words and i never went to law school like you guys you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's guilt through assimilation here, but that, that 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 that's okay though. You know what a lot of people were making, and there's a lot of misinformation too. The search of the house, everyone is making a huge deal out of, and I, you know maybe so, but I I don't think it's really in in essence part of this case. He had 92 registered handguns, and I don't know the exact number, but over 200 guns overall in a room that allegedly had like a foot or two foot thick, depending on who you speak to, concrete. And then he had like a a safe type door. I don't think that's unusual for a gun owner to protect their guns in that fashion, especially if they have that amount of guns. But people in the very beginning would say it was the torture room. It was this, it was that. And then that turned out to be like he had a soundproof room. That was all made up. Uh, That wasn't true. And in fact, Rodney Harrison cleared that up and said, no, you know, he had a room that he kept all his guns and it was secured with a, uh, uh, I think it was like almost like a steel door. So it seemed like he was more concerned with his guns than he was his regular house that had two boy floors holding the roof up, Mm -hmm. you know. Uh, What do you make of that, Bobby, that he had that amount
3: of guns? I I don't know. I know friends of mine. I'm not a gun guy. I have carried a gun my whole life. I grew up in houses with, with guns. Obviously, my dad's a cop. Um, I, I have no problem with guns. I don't have. I have, I have a couple of guns that I use for personal protection and my house protection. Um, but I have friends that are what I would call gun enthusiasts. Um, and I can't. I mean, some of them live in pretty rural places and have their own firing ranges in their yard. And and even some of those guys, I don't even know if they have 200 guns. It seems to me that's a lot of. You know. But the thing is, he. I don't. He, there's no reason to believe that he was using them to kill people because I don't think any of the victims were. Were actually shot so uh, you know I don't um, I, you know I don't I don't know what to make of it I mean he's a gun enthusiast I don't know what he was doing I think some of the investigation will come out whether that he belonged to a gun club that he go to a range on we I don't know but it it does seem to be excessive to me but so what it doesn't mean anything if he was if he's buying them legally and he owned them you know legally that I, I it may it may be a red herring I don't, I don't know
0: right it could have absolutely nothing to do with this case whatsoever there's a there's a question for you from the chat uh, Bobby Mm-hmm. Lula Morocco, thank you for the $10 super sticker. Mr. Chacon, are you telling me that D.A. Tierney and Commissioner Harrison passed the NCABC test? Give one reason why the FBI is not fully in charge of the biggest case this century, please.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, homicide is a local crime, generally. I mean, we do have some federal homicide statutes and we have some uh, federal um, uh, serial killer statutes. But this is a, a case that was was properly lodged at the Suffolk County DA's office. And the Suffolk County Police Department, um, the FBI lends its assistance, you know, like the New York State Police did, and everything else. Um, and uh, you know, and since the FBI in, was involved, you know, like we said, since the task force has been put together, you know, everything everybody's worked great together, and they've had great success. I don't think that, you know, I, I, I don't think the, the FBI needs to be. I, I don't think it's a proper place to bring this into federal court. I think this is a, a state uh, a state crime right now. Um, you know, when I used to do mafia cases, and the mafia would whack somebody as part of a RICO case, those were federal crimes. Um, when I did my gang cases in Brooklyn, you know, we had a, a statute called murder and Ava racketeering. Uh, that's, a, that's a Rico type crime. So murder is sometimes a federal crime, um, but here you don't have those kind of connections. This is, I think properly sitting in, in the DA's office and at the Suffolk County PD. And I think that the task force as constituted brings in all the expertise that they need uh, to get a conviction. Hopefully uh, they'll get a conviction. They certainly, you know, had great success in the year or a little bit more than a year that the task force has been together. Uh, you know, so I, I don't, I think it's a good thing. I think that's where it belongs. Uh, you know, uh, I think that in the aftermath of this, uh, the national, the NDAHBC, that's the, that's where we look at, that's where the FBI lodges all of the crimes of a similar nature. So if somebody, <clears throat> what you were talking about earlier, Bill, about the MOs, that's where MO, that's kind of the MO database, if you will. There's a little bit more to it than that. But that's where if you have somebody that kills people in a particular way, You know, and you had three of them happen in Idaho and two of them happen in Arizona and one happened in Texas. Those are the people that put those things together. And so I'm sure that this guy's crimes, as we get more into the analysis of how now, because we're learning more about how he carried out these crimes. And so I think that will be put into that database and hopefully they will be finding more connections, not only DNA, but through his practice of how he carried out these crimes that's what's in that database. That's what the database that was referred to in the question. And so I think that that's going to come. I think that's going to come later as part of the additional investigation, you know, into this guy and into possible homicides outside of the ones we know uh, about the victims that were in uh, Google beach.
0: You know, Bobby and, uh, and, and Mike, uh, they suggested the same thing in, in, in Idaho, uh, you know, with the, the students, uh the four murders of the students that um, the FBI should come in and take the case over. And not only is that a bad policy because it would really piss off the locals if you did that, but having them come in and help, that's the answer. You know, that's the answer to it. Not coming in and, or even having the state police, man. could you imagine the bad feelings that would create? Look, I was in Manhattan North homicide squad. And when they made this homicide task force, Someone very smart made this decision. They said, no, the homicide squad does not catch the homicide. They assist the precinct squad with the case. And that created good feelings rather than the bad feelings it would have created if the homicide squad came in and goes, all right, precinct squad, go back to doing uh, discount arrest and going back to do domestic violence. We're going to, the big boys are here and we're going to take over. That would create ridiculous amount of hard feelings in the same way that If the FBI just came in and took over the case, it wouldn't. uh...
3: And I I don't think there's a forum for it. I don't. This is not a federal crime, what he's done. I mean, there is a serial killer statute, but it's very limited. And and it, it really it really is there so that the FBI can come in and give assistance so we can actually dedicate manpower. And we don't ask for the department. We don't ask for money from the department, mutual aid or anything like that. We can come in because there's a statute, a federal statute that says we can come in and we can come in and add that assistance, financial resources, whatever it is. And we can. And that's what we've done traditionally. And then, like, look, I've, I came in the FBI in 1987. I worked on NYPD task forces for the 16 years I was in New York. Drug cases, organized crime task forces. FBI, I, I, as In my whole history, I've never seen the FBI, quote unquote, go into the local area and take over a case. I've seen a lot of assistance. I've seen a lot of us going in. And assisting in everything we can whatever resources we can bring to bear if if they need us we're there if they don't need us that's fine too um but but it's just not it, not only is it not it really doesn't happen anymore i think that's a, a vestige of of tv and movies every time i see it now as a writer i see it and i curse the writer who writes that stuff because it really it doesn't happen much anymore it's it, if at all um and and really there's no There's no forum like the U.S. attorney's office, the federal prosecutor in this case would be the Eastern District of New York and Brooklyn would have to agree to prosecute this case on a federal level. And it's just not it's just not the type of case that would that would find itself there.
0: You know, Bobby, you're right. And, you know, something TV sometimes really dictates sometimes reality, like the TV even suggested, you know, with the student cases. Oh, the FBI, when are they going to take this case off? Where did you get that from, first of all? Who told you to say that, you know? It's, yeah. it's so ridiculous. And you're right. But then the same thing, people think that cops have to read Miranda on the scene. Because every episode of Law and Order, when they arrest a the guy, I cringe when the guy goes, you have the right. I'm like, oh, stop. No one does that. Yeah,
3: <laughs> yeah I mean, look, I, I wrote on Criminal Minds for four years. I was in the writer's room. I was a tech advisor. Look, I, You know, and look, I have, like I said earlier, I have very good friends that are profilers, but FBI profilers don't do 90% of the things that we wrote them doing in that show. They just don't. We don't have a private jet that they fly off to every case <laughs> they have. You know, they don't go on the G5. We do have a G5. It's a director's plane. Uh, you know, the, the profilers aren't like going out and, and taking over cases and chasing people down alleys and doing all that stuff. It's mainly an academic pursuit. Um, people don't want to hear that. Um, but, but people have blown the profiling profession up and, you know, profiling is not allowed in court. You know, I, I rarely used it in my career. Um, and and so, you know, TV does oftentimes mislead the public and then they apply that, that misknowledge, uh, to real world cases on the internet when they're commenting.
0: But it's not just TV shows. It's mainly the news. The news really feeds a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, even on this case, they... They want this case to be about what they didn't do twelve years ago mm-hmm. rather than what they just did two weeks ago you know yeah if you're want- if
3: you're um if you're willing to in- indict the police twelve years ago quicker than you're going to indict rex uberman your 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 mind might be in the wrong place
0: yeah, I think that's true um Mike, what do you think about the possibility, and we're hearing this all the time too are there two Gilgo serial killers
2: Billy, I was Thinking that, just looking over the timeline, and I was, as I said, I was looking at uh, some information on Joel Rifkin, but uh, I think the oldest case that they have goes back to the late nineteen nineties, uh, involving that child, and I think there was also a victim at Fire Island. So, um, and I know Joel Rifkin was caught in ninety three, so um, his 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 uh, years of killing was like eighty seven to ninety three. So I don't think there's a possibility that there were two killers unless they're uh, yeah, I, I doubt that unless they the, the uh, analysis is wrong. And maybe one of the uh, the the skull and the, and the body fragments they found, they've dated it improperly or, or something like that. But um, it's probably a really strange coincidence that you would see two Uh, serial killers, or, you know, using the same, uh, you know, stretch of land, or possibly that there are a number of number of killers, single killers using that piece of land. So um, I think probably we may never be able to tie it to um, Hureman because of the bodies being outdoors and lack of evidence. But um, I doubt that there was more than one serial killer. Dumping bodies in that loop, in that along that parkway. I, I don't see it.
0: And Bobby, you sort of addressed that earlier. You also feel that uh, it's 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 not uh, more than one serial killer. Yeah, I think thing. I think the
3: odds of uh, you know, like uh, like Professor Griesinger just said, I think the odds are astronomical that that two different killers would choose the same land, who are unconnected to each other, and just happen to bury bodies, you know, hundred yard, hundred yards less away from each other. I think the, their odds are astronomical. We have had those kind of things. People win the lottery all the time at these astronomical odds. So, um, you know, it could happen, but it would be, to me, it would really surprise me if, if number one, he was working with somebody else, like because that's been bound, bandied about, or number two, that not all of these bodies are connected to him. It would really surprise me. But like I said, and like the professor said, I, I think that some of them, because of their condition and, and because of everything else, You may never be able to definitively tie him to it, at least not in a court of law, uh, but it would really surprise me if he wasn't the one responsible for each of those bodies out there.
0: You know, I just want to ask uh, one question, just throw it out there. I know that um, uh, police commissioner Harrison said um, the family was not involved. They had no idea. They were shocked. Uh, And I, I somewhat buy that. I don't buy into that a hundred percent, and I don't. I mean, I don't think they had any part in it. But I also want to know day to day what was his demeanor toward his family. This guy's a serial killer. He's an animal. You know how did he treat his family? Now, obviously, I think psychologically he probably destroyed them. And I, but I. I mean, I can't. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a forensic psychologist. But just knowing about who this guy is at this point, allegedly, we must use that word, he's allegedly the Gilgo Beach serial killer. How did he treat his family? Bobby, oh, oh, you me, okay.
3: Yeah, no, look, I, I, look it happens. And, and every serial killer case that I know of, it's the same question. And they did have a second, you know, they, they were very adept at the, the the successful serial killers are adept at hiding that part of their life. Um, and I mean, look, and now we're hearing from his neighbors. This guy was a terrible guy. He was, you know, he was a jerk and he was, he was the worst neighbor. He didn't really kind of meld in with the rest of us. You know, this is a very suburban neighborhood. Everybody knows each other. You have block parties have picnics in the summertime. And, and he wasn't one of those guys. But every neighborhood has one of those guys. Every neighborhood has the jerk of the neighborhood. The guy who right. yells at his wife too much. The guy who screams at his kids. You know, that doesn't make every one of those guys a serial killer. You know, they're jerks. They're, you know... I, I would use stronger language, but they, you know, they're just people that you know people know, and it doesn't mean every one of those guys is a serial killer. Then, when you find out they're a serial killer, and you reverse engineer it and say, "Well, shouldn't we have known because he was a jerk <laughs> and none of the neighbors liked him?" Well, if you go into every single neighborhood, I almost guarantee you there'll be somebody that, that's the weirdo at the end of the block, or that's the bad guy that we always hear screaming at his wife, and and she should leave him, and he's a terrible person. But that doesn't mean we think he's a serial killer, right? I mean, it's like. You know, we we you know the three thing, three things that we always say about serial killers, right? The that, that the profilers tell us, right? It's a it's it's cruelty to animals, it's a fascination with fire, and it's bedwetting into a later life. It's like into their early teens. Those three things. Almost every serial killer has two of those three things. But that doesn't mean everyone that has experienced those three things become a serial killer. It doesn't work in both directions. It only works right, in right. the one direction. So the fact that you know, you're looking back at this guy now and saying he was a terrible guy and all his neighbors say he was a jerk. And so shouldn't somebody have thought about it? No, that doesn't. You, 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 you have to look at the perspective at the time. Right. And nobody nobody is putting that together.
0: That doesn't make him a serial killer. You know, uh, Mike, I, I promised Bobby I'd try to get him off the show in an hour. So I'm going to go to uh, your final thoughts.
2: Okay. Uh, final thoughts, for everyone, is uh, is like we've talked about before, patience. Have patience. This case is going to go on for a long time. The task force is going to be busy for a long time. Don't expect uh, other than uh, if there was ever going to be a a plea bargain rather than a uh, a trial. This case is going to go on for at least perhaps a year before you get to uh, the trial stage. So patience for everybody. Don't jump to conclusions about everything you see on on YouTube or on the Internet. You know, come here for the actual real lowdown on what's on what's going on in the case. So patience, the watchword.
0: Absolutely. I just want to say, folks, we always mention the victims because this case is always, and every homicide is about the victims and uh, the Gilgo four that we know now, Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartellome, Anne Boleyn Costello, and Megan Waterman. uh, We have them and their families in our thoughts because clearly every case, a homicide case is about the victims. Bobby, before uh, I, I let you give your last words, I just want to give you an open invitation to come back at any time. And I would love to have you come back. You're a wealth of knowledge. You're a Long Island boy. <laughs> You're Thank a you. Hofstra law grad. Yeah. So uh, well, I would love to invite you back. Well, uh, final thoughts, Bobby.
3: Yeah, I mean, people have to start. I, in my mind, this is two different cases right now. We have the three that he was charged with and the four victims that you put up there. Again, those the, that, that, the legal process is moving forward. That... Train has left the station. We have to focus. There's a team focusing on that. The, the task force is not doing everything all at once. So there's a team focused on helping those DAs. When's the next hearing? What do we need? Do we need a witness at that hearing? Do we need testimony? Do we need physical evidence to be entered into the record of that hearing? So they are focused on that because once you file the speedy trial and this double jeopardy, so you have to focus on the three that you've charged them with. And I've always said, like, you know, the day a prosecutor files charges, Normally, they feel that day they have enough to convict. They're hoping for stuff, but you never hope for a linchpin linchpin piece of evidence after you file charges because it may not come. You know, so so I think that they felt and there's always this back and forth between investigators and DAs. And, you know, we're usually a little more comfortable going forward with charges before they are. They always want more evidence. And so then you come to that, you know, that day where you say, okay, we're comfortable filing charges now on this guy. That day they feel comfortable that they have enough to convict beyond a reasonable doubt in front of a jury because prosecutors don't file charges and then hope to get the big key piece of evidence. They just don't do that because we have double jeopardy we have we you know a jeopardy is attached in this case, so you can't do that and so will they get more evidence? Yes, yes, of course but but they feel confident that they can convict him on those three murders and those charges that they filed now hopefully they will get more evidence obviously um but but then everything else is, to me, secondary. We will, we will not that it won't be investigated or looked at or a lower priority, but there's a different team probably working on those because the team that's looking at the charges that have been filed has to has to be very um, focused on that because you can't drop the ball in one of these pretrial hearings. You know, there'll be a year or so or more of these hearings, and 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 the prosecution has to be on its game uh, in a case like this. And so I think that in my mind there's, two different things going on half most of that task force is looking at all these other things and then there's a team that's just focused on the charges that have been filed they have probably moved some of their offices over into the da's office already they have a war room over there they don't want to be distracted by you know a homicide that's in atlantic city or what, what's that about they want to focus on the charges that have been filed because you know like i said he's got a right to speedy trial his, his lawyers are filing motions. Those motions have to be responded to. The DA is going to turn to the investigators and say, hey, this is the motion. How you know, we're going to respond, but we need this and that. And so I think that, you know, just like, a, you know, I think the professors are absolutely right. Patience. Let's get him convicted on these three. And then let's, you know, and at the same time, let's look at what else he's done. But don't over don't 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 lose the sight of the of the of the picture that's in front of us. And these are the charges that are filed against him, you know, with these four victims and these three murder charges. I think we have to focus on that. We have to get him convicted. You know, that's the first order of business. Very well
0: said, man. You guys are both professors. I can tell you've spent some time <laughs> in front of a large lecture hall because you, <laughs> you, you give, give great answers. Bobby, retired FBI agent Bobby Chacon, now a member of the Writers Guild. Uh, for television. Well, thank that's right. so <laughs> Oh, that's right. He's on Strike Solidarity. <laughs> Luckily, though, you have a pension. Some of these writers right. don't have any money. Yeah, uh, no, I'm not a starving artist. That's for sure. Hey, hey, uh, Bobby, could you lend me a few thousand <laughs> strikes <over. laughs> Oh, and Mike, Professor Mike Geary, thank you so much. Folks, all you folks that tuned in tonight, thank you so much. Police off the cuff, Real Crime Stories. Have a great night, everybody.
3: Thanks, guys. Thank you.
2: One episode just
3: ain't enough